Looking for new threads? Well, we've got you covered at the Music Is Live podcast official merch store over at tpublic.com. Whether it's t-shirts, baseball tees, hoodies, coffee mugs, travel mugs, phone cases, or onesies for your infant rockers and metalheads, you can find everything you're looking for over at the Music Is Live podcast merch store at tpublic. Go to my link tree at l-i-n-k-a-t-r dot e-e forward slash Music Is Live podcast and get your merch today. Buy my stuff and thanks for your support. TerraNut is proud to offer you a natural nut bar chock full of healthy fats, minerals, and protein that meet your demands. Go to their website, www.terranut.com. You can order from them directly, and they will ship it to you. Use my coupon code, LUMAVS, and you will get a 25% discount on your first order. TerraNut Superfood Snacks, www.terranut.com. Don't forget to use coupon code, LUMAVS, at checkout. Fuel your life. You're listening to the Music Is Life podcast with your host, Lou Mabs, on the Rat Sound Review Network. Lou Mabs here. This is the Music Is Life podcast. Thank you for watching it on YouTube. Thank you for listening to it on all available streaming media platforms. If you're a fan of the Rat Sound Review Network, thanks so much for your support. I recently interviewed General George Fullen, who used to own General Studios in Douglaston and who recorded many, 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 many albums at Pi Studios in Glen Cove. George is someone I'm proud to call a friend. We had a recent conversation which lasted about three plus hours. <laughs> so uh, it's a long one. I had to break it up a little bit on my MacBook because you know, I edit everything on iMovie and I bump everything so that the audio can go on Anchor and the video could go on YouTube. And in that three plus hours of conversation, there was a lot of stuff that, that was talked about that I didn't want people to miss out on hearing. The only thing is, as much as I love George, I understand human nature and the human attention span. <laughs> so... What I'm going to do with this episode is I'm going to break it up to three parts and you're going to either be watching or listening to part one right now. And over the next couple of weeks, you know, I'll definitely upload parts two and three. By the time you're watching this, it's possible they may already be up. Can't make any promises. You know, what's the old line in business? Under promise and over deliver. <laughs> but it was a blast talking with George. I haven't seen him in a very long time. Actually, the last time I saw him in person, uh, I went to his um, his mother's funeral. Last time we saw each other before that, I, I recorded with him my old band, The Rebel Medium, the band that you hear in the intro every episode. And that was a wonderful experience recording with him because the song that you hear in the intro, Lose Control, is a song that I co-wrote with Jackie Weissert, who was the lead singer, rhythm guitar player, primary songwriter. So I'm very proud of that. I'm looking forward to reading your comments or suggestions. And just want to say thank you, George, for a great three-hour talk. And I hope you enjoy it. So here's part one of my discussion with General George Fullen. Enjoy. Music is Live podcast, your host, Lou Mavs here on YouTube on the Music Is Live podcast channel, also available on all available audio platforms where you can download your podcasts, including 
Apple, Google, Amazon, apparently now Pandora, which is cool. And I'm really happy to say that I am joined today by a very special guest. He is someone that I've had the pleasure of working with in the past on music in various genres. He is someone that I consider a very close friend, practically family. You know, it's crazy because here we are the past year, pandemic has uh, kept a lot of people apart, but I actually got back in touch with him again during the pandemic. So I'm happy to say that he is here on the show tonight and we're going to discuss his history in the hardcore scene, his history in music and what he's doing right now and just catching up and shooting the shit. I'm really proud to say that I have my general, General George Fulon in the house. Well, in his house and I'm in my house, but we're here doing the podcast tonight. And let it be known that I know how to butcher our last name better than anybody. George, I'm sorry. It's not George Fulon. It's George Fulon. But no matter what, still the general. General. In the, uh, in the Zoom house. Well, you know, thank thank you for asking me to do it. And I hope I don't disappoint. Nah, you never disappoint. Please. Every, everything that I've done with you has been gold. And I'm sure this is going to be great. And, you know, can't thank you enough for uh, being a part of it. You're the first producer slash engineer I've had on the show. And I'm glad that you're the first one, considering we worked very close together with uh, my wife, Erin Michelle, and with the Rebel Medium. And I've heard a lot of the other work that you've done. So a lot of questions to ask you, especially with, you know, again, as I mentioned, us being in a pandemic right now and the option of music itself being a career path that one would undertake, which may be lucrative, may not be lucrative. But again, it's always a matter of what reasons are you doing it for? And I learned a lot with you. And like anything, the more you speak to people, the more you learn and the better you could become. That's my primary reason for even doing this podcast in the first place. And again, thanks for being a part of it, George. Yeah, thank you. No problem. So a little background on you, where you're from, and what life was like for you growing up and what got you into music in the first place. I grew up in Amityville. I'm the youngest of seven. If you want to talk about what life was like, that maybe is another podcast called Therapy. Oh, there's, okay. <laughs> um, I, yeah, you know, the same parents divorced when I was five. Didn't have a lot of contact with my dad until a couple of years ago. And, you know, raised by my mom and my sisters. You know, the normal, dysfunctional, Long Island, uh, utopian uh, family. <laughs> Actually, at that point, like, one of my sisters really gave me my love for music. I, I have to say that she probably had the most influence on me in my younger years and was always playing music for me, all different kinds of music. She was really into the Grateful Dead. Mm -hmm. so she played a lot of Dead. And she would leave, you know, 16, 17 years old, she would leave during the summers and kind of tour with the Dead. And it kind of showed me like, oh, that music can be part of your life to the point where like you go camping for three weeks on the road with your friends and you're around music the whole time. And music is the center of that universe, mm -hmm. which, which then like, you know, weirdly led into my years in the hardcore scene and like how many shows and all that stuff I ended up going to in my younger years. Mm -hmm. So. Early on, I started listening to metal and all that stuff. Me and my best friend, Ed Reyes, I ended up being in a band with called Clockwise. And then he ended up starting half the popular bands on Long Island. Ed Reyes, he started and put together Mind Over Matter. And that's a pretty big thing. And then kind of put all the members together. 
mm-hmm. and then they you know did what they did he left mind over matter and then started a band called no thought which then became clockwise when i started singing while in clockwise he kept showing up with these songs that were too light for me to sing on because i'm a gruffy singer and i wasn't talented enough to sing on these songs so he went and started a band called inside and then inside kind of took off and then he left inside after clockwise broke up he went and started the movie life and put the movie life together and then after he got left that i did not know yeah after he left the movie life he then started a band that ended up being taken back sunday eventually and never heard take, of them yeah and then taking my <laughs> sunday took off so and you know taking my sunday probably one of the more popular bands to come out of and, you know and i still consider that taking my sunday came out of the long out hardcore scene because they did like we were all hardcore back then we were all hardcore kids they were really really at the forefront of the emo the popularity of emo that swept through the country mm-hmm. i'd have to say on the east coast it was probably taking back sunday from long island thursday from new jersey and on in on the west coast side probably thrice i remember those were yeah. probably the three biggest well, then, bands in the early 2000s yeah. to me and then least. my chemical romance that you know that that then really kind of like took the torch and made emo a household name to me like once the major label machine came by and you know put put that thing behind my cam it was like mm-hmm. yeah mcr definitely took it to like a queen level in terms of like their production and in terms of their show and i respect and love those bands you know i mean it's funny because like I, I talk about my love for metal i talk about my love for hardcore on this uh podcast but it, it's funny i i never understood the the term emo because to me it's like it's hardcore that has a very positive usage of mel of melody in it yeah. and I, I think for it to be called emo it's kind of like no, it's it's punk or it's hardcore. You know, some of it's metal influence, some of it is, you know, folk influence. I mean, it's 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 just good music. Yeah. You know, like I, I never under, I never understood that, and it's, to me, it's like later on when you know after we had started working together, there was the scene kids thing where like the emo thing just like took on a whole different life, and I I couldn't yeah. relate to that. Yeah. I mean, to me, early on, like I started hearing the word emo in early 90s, like 1991 with, with Fugazi, because no one knew how to categorize Fugazi. Or Rights of Spring. Know, yeah, or Rights of Spring. And Rights of Spring may be the first time I heard it's like, oh, it's emotional hardcore. And I was like, what? And then it kind of sort of got shortened. And then even Quicksand got looped into that a little bit because it was like, oh, they're emotional hardcore. And it was like, you know, until post-hardcore. And then Sunny Day Real Estate kind of came out and everyone was like, this is emo. And I was like, okay. It was just all the post-hardcore stuff, like all the stuff that came out of the 80s, you know, thrashed influenced hardcore. Because hardcore was Black Flag and, you know, Bad Brains and Minor Threat to me. That was like the hardcore stuff. And then got pushed towards, you know, metal because of commercialism, I think in the late 80s. Um, where metal got really popular, like Metallica, Megadeth and stuff. And and you had these labels kind of like looking for the next big thing. And they were picking up hardcore bands and kind of making it more into thrash, which then you had crossover stuff like DRI and all that stuff, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't love that much. And then you had the 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 sort of the, the older punk rockers, like Seven Seconds, older punk rockers in the late 70s getting in the late night in the late 80s kind of get putting out music seven seconds put out soul force revolution which is like seven seconds meets you too still today one of my favorite records of all time is soul force revolution from seven seconds 
And I think that came out in 87 because they, and then they were going the other way. They weren't getting heavier. They weren't chasing anything. They were just getting lighter and more mature in songwriting. And that came out with this punk influence. And I think that in Dag Nasty, a band like Dag Nasty that, you know, kind of started sounding like Minor Threat. I mean, had members from Minor Threat in it. And then by the late 80s, kind of putting out stuff like We Got It Dankos that was like really melodic, not even really hardcore, but just more melodic. And I think that's the stuff. I mean, that's the stuff that influenced me and Ed to do Clockwise mm. was, the, was the melodic records of those bands. Saw Seven Seconds in 90 or 91 or something, were blown away by it. And then started kind of bought to current records at that time and were like, wow, this doesn't sound punk at all. Like Seven Seconds was supposed to be a punk band. It's like, what is this? This is great songwriting. And it's like all, all that early, all that like the older guys doing this new melodic or or even heavier, but still melodic stuff like like a quicksand or a burn were just like blowing us away. And then when it came time to do clockwise, it was like, let's write riffs like that. Let's write a chuggy part with a sing with a singy part over it or some kind of other melodic or octaves or something on a guitar. And it, and it really turned into that. And I think that was like the foundation of emo. I mean, even even my mom, <laughs> who, who saw Taking Back Sunday later on, was like, oh, Ed's just doing the same stuff. He's playing the same music, but he's got a better looking singer now. <laughs> I sing for Clockwise, so that was the joke. But, but uh, <clears throat> you know, so, so that's that. But, but to go back, to the stuff me and ed you know we're 12 years old listening to motley Crue and metallica and all that stuff and then um you know somebody was like you can you can go see these bands live and when we were like 14 in 1987 we we had faked our ids so we could be 16 which is which was a friend of ours had <laughs> the same typewriter that um that looked like our uh that looked like our birth certificate num numbers okay so we went to the library photocopied our birth certificate uh took white out whited out the 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 year we were born and then photocopied that went to my friend's typewriter made a bunch of photocopies of that because we had to get it right went to my friend's typewriter he typed in a new year we then went and photocopied that and then we folded it up and brought that to the club and said, my mom won't let me leave with the real, like I'm getting my license soon, but my wife won't let, we would tell the story to the bouncers every week until the point they would see us with this folded up copy birth certificate <laughs> and they'd be like, come in. Because by the time we were 15, we had gone to so many shows at this club called Sundance in Bayshore that we knew the bouncers. Mm-hmm. To the point where like a huge fight would break out and the bouncers would protect us or a huge fight break out that we would be involved in and the bouncers would put us to the side and then oh my when the fight stopped from happening they would you know like like i have to say i probably got into fights with like you know 30 30 like 30 year old dudes and i was 15 <laughs> and i was like you know thought i thought i was fucking fighting them and doing crazy shit like that when i was like 15 16 years old I think the last fight that I got into at a show, I went to go see um, Anthrax at the Paramount 10 years ago yeah. with um, Testament, Death Angel. Death Angel. I've gotten into fights at Death Angel shows. 
Yeah. So my, <laughs> my, my buddy, Alan and I, we actually, we pushed our ways to the front. When it got to a point where we reached a certain age, we weren't moshers. We were like, no, we yeah. want to stay in the front. But the problem with the Paramount is that, you know, you could crowd surf and they won't stop you. Yeah. So I remember this friggin' jackass who looked like he still lived in his mother's basement with his big Doc Martin boot, decided to friggin' step on my head, push my neck against the guardrail. And then I just went into Hulk mode. I just threw him off me into the front of the guardrail. As soon as he got up, I decked him in the face. And then he was look, he, he was gunning for me. Then Alan's like, yeah. duck down, duck down. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm not bringing you a dead body home to your wife. Just duck down. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, I'm I'm probably not going to push myself to the front anymore. It shows. But, yeah, you know, there's always got to be one schmuck to ruin it for everybody. So I completely understand that. And, you know, it's funny that you're talking about, like, all the effort that you put into the fake IDs to go into shows. This was before they started doing all ages or, you know. So this this was at a, a we mainly started going to shows at this place called Sundance because it was like, you know, whatever the rock Long Island rock magazine would advertise shows mm-hmm. and you'd get a whole lineup like the old days were like looking through the village voice or whatever yeah i think good times is like the last magazine that does that although that hasn't good been shows it might have been good times back in the day so like you you know we'd find good times at like you know uncle phil's record store or like mm-hmm. we used to go to uh we used to take the train to valley stream so we grew up in Avril's south shore we take the south shore line um to valley stream and go record record you know shopping at uh at slip discs and valley stream and uh, I have to say, like, that's if, if it wasn't for those folks that slipped this, like, I, I might be listening to different music right now. Mm. So it would just be like, oh, oh, I like this. And it'd be like, well, then have this. <laughs> it's like, have this. <laughs> have this. Like, we listen to so many bands. And, like, you know, we would show up there, like, bands would stop and sign stuff. And, like, Ed was really into getting autographs and stuff like that. So we, we'd go with him and he'd get his jacket signed or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you'd find out about a show. Like, you know, we saw, and this is probably when I was, 16 or 17 so i think i drove to the show but we saw sepatora at this place sundance in front of like 18 people like That's they're insane. from the tour. yeah and then i think they slept at our friend's house oh <laughs> so like you know th- there's just you know there's stuff like that that like we just were so into metal back then and then and then slowly you know transitioned into hardcore but you know we were like little metalheads my hair was down to the middle of my back i was 16 um mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't wait to get my license. But back in the day, we used to we used to take I used to, we used to take the train. I'd go to Angle train station, hop on a train, go to Bayshore. You know, walk through a pretty horrible neighborhood. But I grew up in a pretty horrible neighborhood, so I knew what to do. And then, uh, and then go to these shows, and then not, and then not come home until, like, we would catch the seven o'clock train in the morning on the way home. Oh, geez. Because the shows would end at three a.m. Mm. like you know it was like he slept at my house i slept at his house kind of thing it was you know to get to go to the shows and like his neighbor who had the typewriter was a little bit older than us so he got Mm -hmm. his license when we were 15 and then that was it we were at sundance every weekend i'm guessing this is pre-union hours the same friend of mine that went to uh that i went to uh, anthrax and testament with um he went to go see uh dream theater play at uh radio city music hall when they did their score show i'm sorry (laughs) We'll get into the story of that later. Yeah. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> he said that uh, Dream Theater ended two minutes late, and apparently, I think they owed the union thirty thousand in overtime fees. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
No, so. this wasn't New York City. This was this was uh, Bayshore on uh, in in Long Island. So Long Island and, kind of was kind of went by different be, rules. Yeah, yeah. There would be five bands, and the show would start at ten o'clock at night. Oh my god! Yeah, that was like normal. It was like a you know a rock club. It probably fit you know legally probably fit three hundred fifty people in it. Illegally, it was five hundred. Lamore yeah. in Brooklyn was like that too, right? Where like the headlining act would go on two a.m. Yeah, it was just like Lamore's. Mm. The whole structure, all that stuff. It, you know, it was a B market club. So. Yeah, but they, it sounds like uh, Sundance and Lamore always sounded like they had the best bands there. Like, I mean, to have been alive at that time, to no, we went, it would have we been went, great. I think in '88 we went to go see Slayer, and it was like uh, almost a riot broke out. Cops came with dogs. It was like. We that left. doesn't surprise me. It being Slayer in 1988, yeah. probably, yeah. But you know, I saw Dark Angel there. I saw, uh, I mean, I saw one of the best shows of my life there, which was Faith No More before they got popular, before they had that hit song. So was Chuck Mosley the uh, singer at the time? I think it. I think it was just Patton. Okay. Just started singing. They opened the show. Then this band called Soundgarden went on. Never heard of them either. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I sound like such a dick saying that, but like, I never heard of them and I was blown away by them because I just had never heard anything like it. And they weren't playing their slow, crappy music. They were playing this fast, but sludgy kind of stuff. And he was going nuts. He broke the roof off. Bouncer almost beat him up. He uh. broke the ceiling above the stage because he was like, there was feedback. They were playing so loud. They couldn't get his mic loud enough on stage for him. So he was like, well, he belted the fuck playing. out of his vocals back then. Yeah. And then Voivod went on and we were there to see Voivod. And I have to say that that Voivod show was, is in my top five favorite shows. Like Soundgarden and Faith and More did not have to play. Fucking Voivod was one of the best shows I ever saw. And the energy of the crowd was great. No one fought. Like it just was this amazing feeling to see Voivod. Time out. Voivod, Soundgarden, and Faith No More all on the same Voivod bill. Voivod headlined and it sold out. And the place was fucking packed. I would have loved that to was, have honestly was, been a fly on the wall there. Holy shit. That was probably 90 or 91. Probably. So this was, okay. So, wow. I, I could always go a, back. Like, I could look up when Faith No More had that hit and then go back six months. No, no I, I, I believe it. And, and honestly, I love all three bands. And just to, to say, just to hear that you saw that, I feel so cheated. Like, I was just like, why didn't my parents conceive at an earlier time? Anyway. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, um, I have a, a, an embarrassing thing that I have to admit is that, I mean, me being born in 1980, um, I didn't discover hardcore until about 96 and that was around the time that i was listening to bands like quicksand and orange nine millimeter and i love those bands but then i was like what a what a great thing to get into (laughs) it took you know it took me years of listening to hardcore for those bands to start happening Right, and you remember when when uh, Walter from Quicksand was in Gorilla Biscuits, Shaka from '09 was in Burn, and here I, I am discovering. Burn. I saw Burn. I saw Gorilla Biscuits. Right, and here I am discovering them at the at at, at not. I don't want to. I don't. I don't know if I would say the apex or the crux of their yeah. career, but I mean, right when they were starting to like really take off, and you know, here I am now going back and discovering where they came from. 
And then I went out and bought my first hardcore CD. And I actually have to thank Slayer for that because if it wasn't for the Undisputed Attitude album, I would have never have heard what those 80s hardcore bands would have sounded like. Mm. And the first hardcore CD that I ever bought at 15 years old in 1996 was the Minor Threat Complete Discography. And I fell in love with it. Minor Threat's the band that, that you know, really had the most effect on my life. Um, I would say so too. I mean, I, I think when we met, you identified as straight edge, correct? I'm still straight edge. Yeah, still identify as straight edge. Like I fucking still buy clothes and embroider X's on them all the time. <laughs> Even though Earth Crisis was the band of the 90s that led the straight edge more vegan revolution more yeah. vegan straight edge yeah. but you know i mean minor threat was the band that started straight edge i mean they coined the phrase i mean, I mean he wrote i've got straight edge like he came up with the that word choice to describe being drug free and alcohol free mm -hmm. and at at 15 16 for me when i first heard that i identified with it because i i did abstain from alcohol then I met my wife and I uh, met her Irish family. Yeah, that ended quickly. Anyway. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I mean, so, so Minor Threat's a funny story for me because I'm a little metalhead. I'm going to these metal shows and I see hardcore kids and skinheads beating the shit out of metalheads. Mm -hmm. Like my first, you know, 14, 15, I was like, hardcore sucks. It's so violent. Fuck hardcore. Two things happen, <laughs> which, which I've told this, I told this story on the, the, the St. Vitus thing but i'll tell it again one of the things what happened was i found a cassette i found a cassette close to like where a car accident was and i was like oh this cassette was part of this car accident like picked it up put it in my walk and i started listening to it and it was fast and it, and it you know and i was like oh, i was good and this guy's screaming i understand what he's saying i was like i never really heard anything like that before you know and i was like this shit's good this shit's good listen to it it started to be the only thing i listened to for like two weeks mm -hmm. and then i was at a party and my friend was like, I'm going to put on hardcore. And, uh, and I was like, no, fuck hardcore. Those guys are assholes. Like they beat up every, they beat up metalheads, fuck hardcore kids. And he put on minor threat. And that was the cassette, the unlabeled cassette that I was listening to. No. And I was like, wait, <laughs> this is fucking hardcore. You know, I'm 15. I'm like, this is hardcore. It's like this light bulb went off. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, what else is this? And then he made me a tape with like, and this is 88, the greatest hits of what 88 hardcore was about, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. So in around that same time period, I was cool. I was listening to black, you know, you know dark metal and, and fucking Slayer and like the heavier, the better and the more satanic, the better. And I was talking to my friend's older brother who was straight into poison and Cinderella and he would hairspray his hair up every day and he put on fucking eyeliner and he was wearing bandanas around his wrist and he was way into the fucking hair metal. He had a fucking Jackson guitar. He was jam every day and this fuck stuff. So, and he's four years older than us. And I remember talking to him and he goes, he goes, listen, he's like, you motherfuckers, you fucking metalheads, you slayer assholes, call it, call us posers. And I was like, yeah, you're a fucking poser. You know, we, we were close. So I could fuck around with, you know, I could mess All around. All right. <laughs> Sorry for cursing. I don't care. So, no, uh, it's a lot. There's no corporate sponsorship on the show. So don't worry so about it. So he goes, yeah. Sorry, Denny's. So he goes, <laughs> <laughs> so he Denny's. goes, he goes, you know, I listened to Cinderella. I listened to Warren or whatever. And he goes, they sing songs about getting drunk and riding their motorcycles and having sex with girls mm -hmm. all night long or whatever. 
And I was like, yeah. And he goes, they do that. They're out doing <laughs> And I was like, okay. And he goes, you listen to bands that say they have like midnight sacrifices and they all fucking chant in the fucking woods and they're out killing people and doing all this stuff. He goes, you think they do that? And I was like, no. I was like, well, fuck. <laughs> well, Mayhem did, but we won't, well, talk, yeah. we won't touch that. Yeah, pre, pre-Mayhem. Pre-Mayhem. So, uh, so I was kind of like, fuck. And I'm always like, you know, honesty is a big thing for me. I have, you know, honesty, loyalty, sincerity tattoo from a band called Brotherhood from Seattle. That was really good in the early 90s. He kind of put me in a tailspin and then I was listening to this hardcore stuff and they're fucking singing about all this stuff that I'm going through, you know, like day to day shit, how we need unity in the scene, how, you know, all this stuff. And I'm just getting more psyched on the more hardcore stuff. They ain't fucking singing about Satan. They're not singing about Hitler. They're not singing about, you know, all this stuff. I keep referencing Slayer. Um, There's nothing you know, wrong with that. We love Slayer on this show. No, I know. I love Slayer. But, but it was like one of those things where I just really started to push metal away. I didn't cut my hair because then within one year from like six, you know, 15 to 16 to 16, 17, everyone found hardcore in my world and everyone shaved their head. And I was like, I'm keeping my hair long. And I just kept my hair until I was like 21. Mm-hmm. My hair was long, but you know, I was cut shaving the side and doing all that stuff too to be a little. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got into hardcore, and then just from just from the amount of shows going, I was going to, you start to meet a lot of people, and then I started booking shows in '91. I booked a few shows, and back then, no one was booking shows. There, there was no like, there was, but it wasn't like a super independent scene. Like we, you know, I read, you know, in a Maxim Rock and Roll, just go into a VFW hall and ask them to have a show there so i started doing that stuff it was like right around when i graduated high school and like me and a couple of people would just you know go to like a vfw and be like hey do you can we do music for you know kids <laughs> <laughs> there might be some dancing and some vfw halls worked out and some didn't and then i got into the studio stuff and that was it for booking shows that's where that's where general george comes from like uh the first show i booked someone like literally like you know i booked a show and was calling people and put the old bands together and put the venue together and it was at, at a studio called split decision in west babylon they had like a back room that you could put 200 people in and i and i booked that show and then we were making the flyer for it and earlier that day someone called me general george Patton. general george how's everything on the western front or eastern front and and gary from killer idols who was drawing up the flyer was like you should put general george productions at the top and, you know, that coined the phrase of General George. And then, you know, later on, it led to General Records. We had a small label for a little bit. And then that ended up being General Studios. And it's just General George. I really think because George Reynolds from Mind Over Matter was the other George in the scene. And he was skinny and attractive. So instead of being like the fat, ugly George, General George fit better. <laughs> I, I think General George is a very fitting scene because you definitely uh, you definitely lead the charge when it comes to uh, getting the best sound out of bands. And I, I have to uh, give some love to Julie Rose. At the time when I knew her was the lead singer, guitarist and songwriter for Kiss the Bottle. She was the one who recommended you to me when I believe I was speaking with her and our mutual um, friend Jay Crawford. I said, I'm looking for someone to get the best sound out of there and she says well you should speak to my friend george he's the lead singer of three years older and i said oh, i've heard of them and i think we met at over dinner one night I at johnny's so. yeah yeah we, we went to we our favorite together. 
we went to our favorite Chinese Japanese restaurant in Hicksville called Johnny's. And we sat down, we had a really nice dinner together. We, we, you know, we talked music and Aaron and I, we were just so taken aback with everything that you were saying. And, you know, we loved what we had heard that you recorded. And Aaron and I went home that night just saying, this is the guy, a long standing friendship and mutual respect. And, you know, here we are today talking about it. You know, I have to give a lot of thanks to uh, Julie, who I think is criminally underrated as a songwriter. So it's funny that you're talking about your experience from the hardcore scene. So like, you're going to laugh when I tell you what my first hardcore show was. It was 1999, May of 1999, Irving Plaza, Motorhead was the headlining act. And opening up were the Dropkick Murphys, Hatebreed, and Scarhead. And that was- That's a crazy show though. Yeah, that was insane. I didn't associate Scarhead with Ezek from Crown of Thorns. I didn't realize it was the same guy. Because yeah. the first time I ever heard Crown of Thorns was in the 96 New York Hardcore documentary. I actually yeah. I actually had the record. Clockwise played, I think, maybe two shows with Crown of Thorns. Like one in Queens. And, and it just because, like, I don't know, we, we love Crown of Thorns. So, like, we wanted to play with them. So whenever mm-hmm. we got to offer a show, it was like a weird mix. Like, I think one of the shows we played with them was like a like a friend show because like everyone's kind of friends with each other mm-hmm. it was like us neglect and crown of thorns clockwise neglect and crown of thorns like such an eclectic you know uh range of music of like melodic hardcore from clockwise and crown of thorns and then neglect like you know doom core or whatever mm-hmm. was it castle heights or voodoo lounge in queens it, it was in queens yeah i think it might have been no it wasn't castle heights i don't think it was there then this was uh might have been new hyde park dublin pub Maybe. That's the first show I ever played. That's the first venue I ever played. So I, uh, mm. you know, very sad that that place is no longer there. I think it's a UFC gym right now. Yeah. How's, <laughs> how, how's that coming along as a business plan? You schmucks. Well, yeah. <laughs> venues aren't doing so good either. I um, know. Cool. I actually just recently purchased a t-shirt to help keep the Amityville Music Hall people employed. By the way, I really do want to drop that real quick. Go to allinmerch.com. 20 bucks just please buy a t-shirt for the amityville music hall please take care of them they're probably one of the last few independent venues that still give music a chance out there and you know looking forward to this pandemic to end so we can start opening the shows again yeah they they do the right thing by the bands and you know i know one of the owners i know the manager and i am best friends with one of the sound guys so yeah keep them keep them together <laughs> i'm glad i supported them by buying a shirt i would have bought two yeah. but i only had enough for one <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so that so that was my first exposure uh seeing hardcore live and then I, and then in 2000 i'm a student at st john's university and i'm taking an accounting class at night and there's an asian gentleman in my class tatted up sleeves and i'm like i know this cat where did i know him from then I heard the teacher say his name. It says Warren Lee. And I'm like, doesn't ring a bell. Then I was listening to my New York hardcore CD and all of a sudden it said 25 to life right under, you know, Rick Healy's uh, name was Warren Lee. Basically, I'm like, oh crap, that's fucking Warren. Yeah. At the time, you know, being a kid who was pretty much sheltered his whole life, I willingly admit that. When I started speaking to Warren, Warren's like, we're just regular people, man. Like we play music because... <laughs> Because it's fun for us, you know. We don't we don't buy into the rock star bullshit. I have to thank Warren for telling me that because 
when I realized you could be a musician and not have to live this stupid rock star mentality, it's like, it, it just felt so much easier to just say, yeah, I play music and yeah. not worry about anything else. That was the wonderful thing about the hardcore scene or just being in like being in hardcore bands was like, you know, you all supported each other. And it was like, you were in the crowd for the band, either playing before you or after you like, mm -hmm. or just being like, oh, those dudes showed up for my show. I'm going to go out to their show. Like you just, you just supported each other in, in a way that like, doesn't happen in other music scenes and it, it really like doesn't bum, it would bum me out that it didn't happen in other like it took me because i was so so immersed in the scene you know through through the 90s and and you know booking shows or helping people book shows or like oh you know helping build a stage in my friend's basement from milk crates and plywood like it, it just was like i would show up and just do anything to help the show go on or like you know, help do sound or like fix a microphone or like any, when I got the knowledge to do that stuff, like that, that like when I started kind of like, not to like towards the end of like when I owned my own studio and I, and I started doing like a little, a lot of singer songwriters, which is actually like a, a genre of music. I really like recording it. Um, it's, it's just like, you could really kind of spread out and do interesting production stuff on singer songwriter stuff. Mm -hmm. get it. But, um, and they would just be like, there would be these amazing songwriters with amazing musicians and they'd play in front of 10 people. And I'd be like, where's the band that opens? And they'd be like, oh, they leave. It's like, well, did you watch them? No. <laughs> there was just no scene built up. They just wouldn't support each other. And, it, and it's kind of like, oh, you just have no, like, to me, it was like one of those like, oh, you don't have, you don't like, you can't call someone up in Philly and get a show. And they're like, no. We don't we don't know how to do that. I was like it's still like oh, that. It was still it, like that up until yeah. like, you know, last I year. Just, I think it's just like that. I just think the hardcore scene's the hardcore scene and it's such a subgenre that like you all want to hook each other up. But but I but I also think that that's changed a little bit. Like, you know, you'd listen to 14 bands and 10, 10 of those bands' albums were about unity and staying together and like standing strong and helping each other out. And then in the late 90s, like, you just didn't hear that on records anymore. So then no one had that drilled into them to help the next person along. I hate to admit it, but I think once it became marketable or yeah. financially feasible to have bands like that, it, it was less about, you know, unity and less about what it started for was as a reaction to the, you know, to what the major labels were putting out. Yeah, and the big, the, the big the, rock the, machine. Yeah. yeah. I think what happened was, uh, you know, once bands realized, oh, I can make a living from this, then it became less about that. I'm glad that I, at least I got to experience it once I started doing shows and uh, playing like, you know, weekend tours with uh, uh, my former bandmates. Um, a lot of times we would be there early for the other bands and we would yeah. stay late for the other bands and they would show us the same <clears throat> respect. And, yeah, you know, it, it kills me that that's just not there anymore. And I mean, well, not yeah. that not that it's there now, but I mean, like it stopped being about that. And yeah. I think that's a I think it's a damn shame. Well, I think you know, I think you know, with with the popularity of emo and the fact that you you know you could build in three hundred kids in every town at every show, buying five thousand dollars worth of merch, like it it just you know like there was money to be made there, and all the local little clubs saw that. So it was taken out of the VFW halls 
and put in this like, well, here's a stage that's three feet high and has a PA system and a sound guy that has to get paid and like all this stuff. And then booking agents were booking all these bands all over the country and there are people swimming back and forth between different places. I just think like the machine of rock came in and it's fine. A lot of people I know worked in that machine and still work in that machine, even though that's it's taking a pause for a year because of the pandemic. But um, I just think that just changed the immediacy of like, like when Clockwise would go out and play on the road and we didn't even tour that much, but it was like, we had to call people. <laughs> like I got a number to some guy in Pennsylvania and it was like, I'd call him and be like, hey, Eric, you know, we're thinking about playing Philly uh march 6th do you have anything to seventh and you go oh no but i'd love to see you uh, uh there's a coffee shop i could have you play at do you mind playing with like a couple of local bands would be like we'd love to play with some local bands and then like you know and then that would be like a saturday and then we'd, we'd play somewhere else in jersey on sunday and come home but it was like that was all phone calls and you know a month in advance or two months in advance and then you know before you left you go hey eric is it still on be like, yeah, yeah, I saw that spot. Or you wouldn't hear from Eric. You'd show up at the coffee shop and be like, no, nah, man, we had a fight here last week and we're not doing shows here anymore. And be like, okay, I'll take a large coffee. <laughs> you know, it's like, and then you'd, you'd hang out in, somewhere in Pennsylvania and then go to the, your show in, in Jersey on Sunday, you know? It, it just was, but now it's like a booking agent and manager and all that different stuff is like booking that same size band. You know. Well, you know, it's funny because one of the things that I promote on on the podcast is the idea that musicians, they're at actually an interesting point in time right now where they could do everything on their own. That doesn't require the booking agent. It doesn't require a record label. They could just, you know, and even though I think if you want to get good, it's good to have a producer slash engineer to help you get your sound, get the sound that you want on record. This way, it gives you an idea. Oh, you know, let's experiment with this a little bit, yeah. which is one of the benefits that I got from working with you, which is why, like, I'm happy to say that now I'm recording stuff on my own at home. And if I wanted to put a band together, it's like, okay, write the songs, you know, find like minded musicians who just want to do it for fun, uh, have no problem doing it on the weekends, getting together, practicing this stuff. And you know, we don't have to worry about the pressures of a major label because it's like, you know, we're playing music that we love to play and, yeah. you know, we're out performing it and we're happy. You know, we have functional vehicles that can get us from point A to point B and back home. Although I will admit some of the fun times were when our, my 91 Ford Explorer would break down and we tried <laughs> to fix it. But, um, you yeah, know, I've, the, I've, the, I've, the, I've rewired some uh, some taillights on a trailer that we bought. <laughs> in, but uh, but the Four truth is, in the morning at a road road stop in Philly. I mean, outside Pennsylvania, you know, outside Philly and Pennsylvania. But I think one of the problems is that as much as a useful tool social media is, it's also kind of made people lazy because you're not making those phone calls. It's like you know, you're messaging a venue, hey, can uh, you got a spot for me? Yeah, yeah, X and X and X. But do they go on and promote it? No. It's like you have to go on and promote it, and then yeah. when you play, and it's like. Oh, you're playing for your girlfriend and two other people because you didn't call anyone. It's like, you know, then they're like, well, we don't want you back here again if you're not going to bring people. It's like, I just feel like it's it's harder 
for musicians to play some places because some people just don't want to go out to a rock club. Some people um, have no interest in seeing live music. And for a lot of the venues, it's, you know, for them to survive, it's only about money. It's not about getting the audience that would come see the bands that they play. So there's, I don't know, there's, I just, it saddens me that there's no support there from venues to bands and bands not putting in the time and effort to do what we were doing back then, which is why, you know, here we are an unknown band, but it's like, oh no, we're playing this stage. And your friends will go like, you're playing that stage? Oh, I got to come down and support you. Like there yeah. was excitement. Yeah. Like, e- even if we were playing Dublin Pub or if we were playing Traditions over by St. John's University or if we were yeah. playing Fuzzy's Wolf Rose in Bell in Bell Rose with Punch Your Face, you know, like those yeah. are great days. And people I mean, listened. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, so so I closed my studio in 2000 end of 2009 basically being in 2010 i was out of my studio i made the second black anvil record you know that winter and then and then i would and then that making that black anvil record and and you know a couple of things that had you know um i just didn't think i could make the quality of records that i was making because i didn't have my studio anymore mm-hmm I was bummed out and then towards the end of my studio I was just like making making records and making music for things that was very uninspiring stuff that I was keeping my lights on I I, I made you know one or two records in 2009 that I really liked but like I was burnt out you know I was I was burnt out of you know working 100 hour weeks and not and not really besides the music I was making and the people I was spending time with not really having anything to show for it like you know almost you know on the edge of being homeless all the time and not coming up with rent and like the struggle of just living life. And, and then um, I met my girlfriend who is now my wife and, and really sort of wanted to settle down with her and just, just kind of seeing the writing on the wall, of the music industry. And a couple of things happened. Um, it, it's funny. I'll tell the end of my music industry story before I tell the beginning of my music industry story, but that's okay. Um, this shows off its rocker anyways. <laughs> we're, we're just happy to have you on, but <laughs> This might have to be a three-parter. Um, I talk so much. That's so, okay. So I guess, you know, that's good for podcasts. But um, it is. So, I, I, it, so, it's, it's the quality of the quantity. Yeah. I have I had, you know, I had one of my favorite mentors that I worked with on a lot of projects and then started kind of like engineering projects he was producing and doing stuff. And I had him who's like, he's a Grammy nominated engineer. His, his name is William Whitman um grammy nominated one he owned he's won grammys his platinum mix like he's made so many great records in the late 70s and 80s it it and and then sort of took a break in the 90s but made great records in the 90s and was part of making these great records and he's who i learned a lot from um i had him kind of come to me and be like oh you know do you have any records you, you know do you have any bands you know we could do together and i was like man he if if this amazing engineer and producer can't find work, what the fuck is out there for me? And it wasn't like I was up and coming because I had a good client list, but like I what you know I just wasn't making records, and, and I never wanted to be a famous engineer or producer. I just wanted to live comfortably and make records, and that wasn't in the cards anymore for anyone in the, in the record industry. 
it just really unless you hustled and lied to people and stole and and budgeted and you know oh i'll you know you know oh if you record here i'll get you signed i'll shop you it's like it, all those lies and all that stuff was was total bullshit because no studio shopped bands because the the labels would stop listening to the studios because you're always recording right <laughs> your job is to record the bands not shop the bands so like anytime i heard people other studios i'd be like well go record there and you know he'll shop you and we'll see what happens you know and none of those bands got signed or doing yeah but anyway. it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because my wife aaron and i we have a uh, we have a friend who was working with a grammy nominated producer and then when the work was done for him to give him the rights to the masters he had to sign a contract saying that producer gets x amount of points for yeah. and, and, he's an uns- and he's an unsigned artist he's an unsigned he's artist not unsigned and he's-, anymore. he's not unsigned anymore because he has a production deal <laughs> right and i think he actually just said i'm not giving you anything when it comes to my music and he's like well i'm not giving yeah. you the masters so he decided, well, I learned enough from you. So I'm going home and I'm re-recording this stuff on my own. And now he's happy because he's doing what he wants. A production deal is a, a natural thing. Like the producer believes that they have enough, you know, time and, and will spend their time and effort for a payout later. Like I, I did some production deals in my studio. You never um, did that with me though. And I, I would have, if I had known that that was a legitimate thing, if you had offered it... Well, I didn't like I didn't like doing them, mm-hmm. so you know somebody would have to come and the manager came and said, "Hey, this band is you know this that and the other thing, and you know can you cut them a deal for like first right of refusal on their record and all that stuff like that." And then, and then uh, you know I was halfway in, so I was halfway halfway into recording this band. We were doing a five song EP where I was basically fronting half half the studio time for uh, as the as part of the production deal. And it was going good and you know and 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 there's a difference between when like someone's paying for something and then or i'm paying for it and i remember getting in the fight with the guitarist and being like you're gonna play this again and be like there's nothing wrong with it and i was like there's this this and this wrong with it just fucking play it again because it was one of those things where it's like it was all my time they weren't paying by the hour we were just doing five songs so it was like you know, that band was sounding really good because I got to really dig in. And I told the singer he needed vocal lessons. He told me he went to vocal lessons with a good friend of mine, actually one of my best friends at the time. And uh, she's like, that dude never showed up. And I was like, what are you doing, dude? And it ended up he was taking the money that the band was paying for his vocal lessons and buying Coke. And then the band broke up. That's Uh, why I didn't do that many production deals. I got it. But I always said that if I had made it to a point in the music industry where a major label would have found interest in me, I would have been like, okay, I only work with one producer. I would, I, yeah. I like that's, that, I mean, that, and then, the, and I, then they would have been like, no, that's not, that's not true. Go, go work with this stuff. Like, you know, I recorded a bunch of stuff for Taking Back Sunday and Taking Back Sunday. Hey, we want to use our friend who's a producer. And the guy from Victory had no idea who I was or where I worked or, or the quality of studio that I was at. And it was when I was at Pi. So they would have had a way better sounding first record. And then mm-hmm. they were like, we got this deal. He just did a Thursday record. He gives us a good deal. Oh, I I plan on talking to uh, Tyler from Cripple Dern and Dr. Racula. I'm sure he has a lot of nice things to say about Tony Victory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if, or, you know, everyone's in lawsuits right now. So, um, Oh, I believe it. So I was burnt out. You know, Whitman kind of was asking me for records and made me think about it. 
and, and also like I just didn't like the attitude of musicians <laughs> at the time because it was like oh you could fix that and it's like no I don't want to fix it I want you to play it you've been part of that where I'm like hey you got to play that again hey you got to play that again let's make it tighter and I and I hope like you know at the end of when I was done making records for people they'd be like I'm a better musician now I know my songs better because you made me play them but there's a lot of people that just didn't want to play their stuff again just to interject yes he did that and yes it made me a better musician yeah listen and, to and, your producer engineer they know what they're talking about yeah and 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 that's the kind of and that's the world i came from and like this you know the the records i was part of you know being an assistant engineer on so you know it starts the end and then and then i i was at a show and i was talking to a friend who owned a label in jersey and I was like, hey, man, you get any good bands? Are you excited about any of the bands? And he goes, I haven't been excited for the last four bands I've signed. And I said, what do you mean? Like, you have a good indie label. You have good funding. You should be signing bands you're excited about. And he goes, the bands I'm excited about sit on the couch and don't fucking do anything. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, the two bands I signed, and this is when MySpace was a thing. He goes, have 18,000, over 20,000 followers on MySpace. They toured themselves for two years without a booking agent. They've busted their ass. And I'm like, well, what about their music? And he goes, it's okay. Hmm. So I'm like, who gives a shit about a good band anymore? This band, he's going to sign. He's going to force it down people's faces. Music sucks. <laughs> and then I was kind of done. I was done. Uh, I've had that similar Being issue with musicians. Being a professional engineer producer, I was done. I've, I've I, left the industry. I don't blame you. I mean, as a musician, I think I just got kind of jaded with certain people. I remember that uh, at the time I was playing in uh, an Epiphone Les Paul. Now, I don't have enough to drop three Gs on a Les Paul custom. Yeah. And I have, I have to, three Epiphones behind me. I love them. Nothing wrong with them. I was happy with playing it because I was able to get the amp and get the pedals uh there we go nice pan of george's guitars and as you can tell i have my five string ibanez x series bass and my dean vendetta which is a neck through and plays beautifully yo deans make good guitars i know i can't believe they mistakes made, they made leaving some, Dean now they made some bad guitars that were like under 500 bucks and they got a bad name probably mm -hmm. like 90s but they make some quality stuff they do. Every I really like their Vendetta series. I was buying budget instruments. Some of the musicians that I played with, some of them are like, I don't care. He needs a $3,000 guitar. He's not worth his weight. And I'm like, really? Let me hear you play something. Yeah. Blah. And I'm just like, all right. To me, it's like when I got together with musicians, do we get along as people? Number two, can we get along as songwriters? And as long as for me, they met those two curriculum, I was happy with it. I don't think it was self-sabotaging of me, but this is the problem that I had with staying in a band too long was because nobody was getting their priorities straight. It was like, okay, we're not rock stars. We're not trying to be rock stars. Yeah. We're trying to write good songs. We're trying to put on a good show. We're trying to, you know, get good time in the studio. And it just seemed like, you know, with the exception of like, of like a handful of musicians, I would say about 25% of them that I could get along with it. You had the other 75% who were dicks about it. And, yeah, it's probably the reason, you know, and people could say, well, if you failed as a musician, you know, you, you have to blame yourself. I'm like, all right, number one, just because I never signed to a major label, I don't consider myself a failure in musician because I'm still doing it. 
and I'm yeah. still loving it. And because I don't have the, the pressure of needing it to be able to put food on the family's table, I enjoy it that much more, which yeah. is the, the point that I try to get across with the podcast is telling people you don't need to succumb to the pressures of what industry types, you don't have to worry about what they say. It just kind of freaks me out that here we were at the tail end of bands getting signed when it meant something. And now it's like, I'd rather listen to, you know, local talent who's doing music that they love doing. And I would only want to work with people who enjoy doing what they're doing and find something of value in me. And it's reciprocated. Now that I know that you're still you know, recording bands yeah. once this pandemic is over. Oh, trust me, I'm going to be dropping your name and be like, no, no, get this guy. So for years, I didn't do anything. I did some, you know, like mastering, helped some friends out and did some mixing and stuff or would show up at the recordings and, and kind of like give pointers and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Help some songwriters out. Currently, I'm a broadcast engineer. I manage a broadcast engineering department um, for a major company. We mostly deal with sports. But that's it's all technical, and 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 I have you know a strong technical background um, from wiring studios and restoring vintage gear and all that stuff. Like early on in, in in my recording days, I learned a lot about wiring and reading diagrams and doing you know soldering and all that stuff. So like being a broadcast engineer, which is all video and hardly any audio, I took to it naturally. But I really missed the creativity of of creating music every day. Like it was, I had a hard time with it to the point where like, I, you know, tried to write a movie script. I was like coming up with all this different stuff just to be creative, mm -hmm. just to feed that creative sense. And then um, just in the last three years, I was like, you know what, I'm going to set some studio stuff up in my basement and, you know, kind of set up a little area where I could mix and, you know, maybe do some guitar overdubs and stuff. And uh, I started a record a little bit too long for how long it took to finish but thanks to the pandemic always wanted to work with my friend joe rubino who was in tension dearly departed he was a bass player and dearly departed i and remember dearly departed they were a really always, good band they were really good he's a re really musical bass player you know kind of playing hardcore and stuff like that and his new band we're new band i mean they're four years old but called the ice cold killers i was like man if you guys ever want to record let me know and he was like let's do a record together he always wanted to record with me and i was like six so we started this record he was going to be ep at first and then like him he writes songs like crazy so then he went back to the studio and recorded more songs and he went back to the studio and recorded more songs so now it's a full length and i've just finished mixing it and it's going to be released in may probably one of the proudest records i've worked on um so i'm excited about that so i'm still doing music and i'm still doing production and uh and, and it is nice to be in a studio and like build tracks with people and build songs together and come up with tone and like, it feels great, but I'm a hobbyist at this point. <laughs> By the way, if anybody wants to hear what that song is, it's available on iTunes. The band is called The Ice Cold Killers. The name of the single is We're The Enemy. So I suggest if anyone wants to hear it, check it out. That's a little single that we dropped early in fall. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Music Is Live podcast. I hope you enjoyed my interview with George either by watching it on YouTube or listening to it on various platforms. Tune in to me weekly with Wayne and Greg on Ratsaw Review Network. And whenever I have a chance to upload new content on my podcast, you will see it here. You will hear it on, well, 
wherever you can download all of your fine podcasts. <laughs> Anyways, real quick, uh, big shout out to Wayne and Greg, my buddies over at Ratsaw Review, and also to Eric and James over at Beyond Bushido, Vieira Vault with Ralph Vieira, good old Dr. Fuck, who is making his return to the Rock and Metal Combat podcast, or should I say the resurrection of the Rock and Metal Combat podcast with Wadzilla himself, Ian Wadley. Looking forward to that. And also a big shout out to Aaron and Chris over at Decibel Geek. Anyways, remember, all art is valid. And if there's one thing I learned being in the hardcore scene growing up, it is better to be hated for who you are than to be loved for who you are not. Just remember that. All right. Cheers. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Music Aside podcast brought to you by Anchor.fm and Ratsaw Review. Check out the other shows on Ratsaw Review, including Beyond Bushido, Old Man Metals Musings, The Right Opinion, The Vieira Vault, the Timo Toki Podcast, The BS Sessions with Mark and Jerry, Just the Cheese Please, and The Friday Night Party with the great Harry Barnett and Evie. Graphics by Rocky Baia. For commissions, find them on Twitter at R-O-C-K-Y-B-A-I-A. Intro and outro music for the show is Lose Control by The Rebel Media, written by Jacqueline Guitard, Ernest Leyuk, and Lou Mavs. If you'd like to donate to the channel, please donate to our PayPal at musicislivepodcast at gmail.com. If you're in a band and you want us to review your music, then contact us at Mavs at musicislivepodcast.com. Special thanks to Wayne Noon and Greg Noggle. With much love and gratitude to Aaron, Anna, and Aloysius. For more information, check out www.musicislivepodcast.com. And don't forget to check out www.ratsireview.com. Remember, all art is valid. Thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs>